Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes include a discussion of the new season of Better Call Saul and the best documentaries to look for out of True False. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. Now, normally we'd engage in a bit of scripted banter here, but the world has changed pretty dramatically since the last time we got together. In fact, we're not together. All four of us are doing our part to help flatten the coronavirus curve, so we're all sequestered to our homes. We had originally planned to pair Kelly Reichert's first cow with a movie to be named later, probably McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but A24 has pulled first cow from theaters, and theaters have pulled themselves from theaters, so we had to come up with another plan. So first, we want to tell you about what you can expect from the next picture show going forward, and then we'll talk about this week's pairing. I'm going to go wash my hands, so Tasha, please tell the people how our podcast is going to change in the short term. Well, now you've got me worried about my hands. We've got a special pandemic-themed pairing for you this week, but since theaters have shut down for the time being, we're going to use this opportunity to catch up on pairings for great movies that fell through the cracks in the next picture show schedule. All of these movies can be watched through rental sites or screening services, so it'll be easier than ever to follow along at home. We also intend to keep updating our Patreon with bonus episodes on TV shows and films, and with our weekly newsletter. Circumstances have forced us to get a little creative with the show, but there are endlessly great double features that we can share together. Like this week's pairing. Genevieve, what have we settled on? Okay, so this is either a great idea or a terrible idea, but we've decided to steer into the coronavirus curve and look at two films about outbreaks and the threat they pose to society. First up is Ilya Kazan's 1950 film noir Panic in the Streets, about a New Orleans health official who teams up with a police detective to investigate a murder on the pier. Why? Because when it's discovered that the victim has pneumonic plague, they only have 48 hours or less to crack the case and contain the illness before it spreads through the city and beyond. Then next week, we'll talk about Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, which imagines a global pandemic not unlike the one we're currently experiencing. Is this pairing comforting or the worst idea we've ever had? Stay tuned to find out. You haven't got much time, Mr. Quinn. Commissioner, what's the use of kidding ourselves? We can't track down an unknown killer in two days. He's absolutely right, man. There's only one way to do this. You get on the radio and panic the city. Now, wait a minute. Herewith recorded is the story of a silent, savage menace. How for three days a great American city found itself outside the United States of America. The events, incidents, and emotions of the people who were a part of it, who found time running out as they looked into the face of mortal peril. I knew you guys were crazy. Wait a minute, Neff, wait a minute. Wait, for what? Somebody else to die? When Ilya Kazan directed the 1950 noir Panic in the Streets, his career as a filmmaker was only just getting started. He'd won Best Picture three years earlier with Gentleman's Agreement, a provocative drama about a journalist who poses as a Jew to expose anti-Semitism in New York City. But his most notable achievements at the time were related to his innovations on the stage. 
In the early 30s, he and other young actors had formed the Group Theater, a small troupe dedicated to performing plays of social or political significance. Kazan's interest in issue-driven material would continue throughout his career, but equally important was his collaboration with a young Lee Strasberg, who would be the person most associated with quote-unquote method acting. Kazan founded the Actors Studio in 1947 and handed it over to Strasberg in 1951, and the two of them were crucial players in bringing a level of psychological realism the movies hadn't quite experienced before. Panic in the Streets has many of the elements we associate with film noir, from the expressive black-and-white lighting schemes to its doom-laden plot set in the criminal underworld. But it's also extraordinarily forward-thinking as a piece of direction. Kazan and his photographer, Joseph McDonald, brought the camera to the streets and docks of New Orleans and used a cast stocked with a mix of character actors and non-professionals. In a sense, Kazan's commitment to realism mirrored what Italian directors like Vittorio De Sica and Roberto Rossellini had done in the mid-40s with films like Bicycle Thieves and Rome Open City. Yet there's a dynamism to the camera work and lighting here that's distinctly American and a sign of things to come. Panic in the Streets is a standard noir procedural with a twist. In the opening shots, we get a look at Kochek, an immigrant who's sweating his way through a card game with a bunch of lowlifes in the wharf. Kochek leaves the game too early and with too much money, so a gangster named Blackie, played by Jack Palance, and two of his men gun him down and leave his body on the docks. Normally, such an event wouldn't raise much of a fuss, but when a coroner reveals that Kochek is the carrier of a suspicious bacteria, a call goes out to a doctor, Lieutenant Commander Clinton Reed of the U.S. Public Health Service. Played by the great Richard Widmark, Reed quickly determines the victim has brought pneumonic plague to American shores, and if they can't track down the killers and anyone else he might have infected within 48 hours, many more people could get terminally ill. Now, sometimes an infection is just an infection. You could watch and enjoy Panic in the Streets as a stylish and potently acted thriller about a murder case with far more urgent implications than the usual gangland shooting. But it begs for some deeper reading as a metaphor about some other foreign infection that might be threatening the country. Given Kazan's history as someone who's named names in front of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and the fact that the film came out around the time the Korean War started, it's tempting to believe that the infection in question is communism. But Kazan's testimony wouldn't happen until two years after the film was released, and he'd fought hard for the opportunity to cast blacklisted actor Zero Mostel as one of Blackie's henchmen. In an essay Jay Hoberman wrote recently in the Paris Review on Panic in the Streets and Camus' The Plague, he quotes Kazan, the former communist, as saying, quote, The doctor was a new dealer and the policeman a Republican. That was the way we thought, the remnants of my former political training, everybody representing some social position. A xenophobe could watch Panic in the Streets and see it as a warning about immigrants invading the country, but given that Kazan himself was an immigrant and detailed that experience in his wonderful 1963 epic America, America, that reading seems far-fetched. And so what is the film about, anyway? Well, it's about 96 minutes long. In an America in March 2020, it's a potent fantasy about government authorities with the urgency and competence to snuff out a health threat to the country. Would the tour so simple? What do you make of that tissue, Ben? I don't know, but I don't like it. This one's a specimen of his sputum. And uh, here's one of the bullets Kleber recovered. Oh, yeah, let me see that slide. It's practically pure culture. Get him away from that body. Okay, fellas, that's all. Let's go. Just wait outside for a minute, will you, fellas, for the others? Any way to pull these shades? Sure, Doc. Can you get this name cremated? 
Well, I suppose. I don't want any supposing, Ben. I want you cremated right now. Set it up, will you? Uh, well, standard question. You know, had you seen Panic in the Streets before? And how does it play in the year 2020? <laughs> I had seen it before. I think I suggested this one, and I really liked this film. I liked it when I, I saw it when it came out on DVD. I think I wrote about it for the AV Club at the time. I actually remember having a conversation with you, Scott, where you're like, isn't that about communism? I'm like, is it? <laughs> so I think I'm glad you, yeah. you're you know, here kind of addressing the ways there, – there are many ways this movie can be read, including it's just as a, as a straightforward procedural, which I think in some ways that's how it works best. Yeah, it does, but you can't not think that there's a metaphor there somewhere. You just can't. I don't think. Uh, it's just a matter of, locate, of identifying what that is. I mean, even Kazan is telling you, you know, the quote that Hoberman has from Kazan also kind of acknowledges that one character represents one thing and another character represents another thing. Genevieve, what do you think? I had like almost zero context for this movie going into it. Like, I think I heard it mentioned, but I, I really knew nothing about it before we decided on this pairing. <laughs> when, it, when it was over, I kind of had a flash to that Simpsons gag of uh, Barton Milhouse coming out of a theater showing a naked lunch and saying, I can think of two things wrong with that <laughs> title. Because it's like, there's not a whole lot of panic in the streets in this movie. But like, I obviously get where that title is coming from. But I was just kind of struck by its straightforward procedural nature and the way that it is very easily wrapped up in this 48 hours. Like, it doesn't feel messy enough for, at least in, in our current context, obviously. Like, I'm watching this film for the first time amid everything that's going on now, you know? And so you mentioned, Scott, in the, in the keynote, the appeal of seeing this handled with such competence by, by, the, by the government and, mm-hmm. and law enforcement. But there's also the part where, like, it's done at the end you, you like in 48 hours like everyone's who has been exposed is has been found and it's over and like that doesn't really work for me because like Kochek like seems to come in contact with a lot more people besides just just blackie and so i like it, it feels like there's not enough in this movie to like get a sense of how this illness spreads and to what extent and Obviously, again, I'm watching this in the context of contagion and what's happening right now, and that was not something the film was concerned with in 1950, but there's just sort of a, a disconnect, I guess, to the, the current context with what this movie is setting out to do and how it is telling its story. Like, it's, I guess it, it is more of a, a metaphor than something like what Soderbergh is setting out to do with contagion and actually like show how this might actually play out. Well, I think it's also in, in a touch of the times, too, because you, you would – in this movie, you probably wouldn't want to leave it with a uh, it could happen again kind of ending because, right. uh, you know, I envision the body snatchers had the tack on a happy ending. I'm not sure there was some sort of compulsory happy ending here, but in a way, other some other, other films of this era might end dealing with this topic. Well, you don't want to leave it open-ended like this could happen to you because that might cause some sort of panic in the streets. <laughs> well, yeah. It, it, yeah well, no, he should, he should have put the end and then put a little question mark at the <laughs> Maybe just like like throbbing and like giving off little animated germs, something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think, Tasha? Uh, I really dug this movie. I had never seen it before. I'd heard of it. It was just you know one of those movies that was always kind of on my backlist uh, to fill in some some point during my copious free time. <laughs> but uh, it was a lot richer than I was expecting. It was particularly a lot richer than I was expecting, kind of in the early going. It may seem like a straightforward procedural in a lot of ways, but it kept just dropping these little grace notes and details that fascinated me. I feel like this movie is just constructed in a really 
interesting way to suggest that it could just be like a chapter of a vast series. It has the feeling of like watching an episode of The Wire that's just devoted to running down like one specific thing. All of these little things like the doctor who comes in uh, to the like rundown apartment building is like, well, I'd get you some medical supplies, but I'm persona non grata with all the local medical supply centers. And it's immediately just like, was he like illicitly getting drugs and selling them on the side? Is he a quack? Did he like fail to treat the right person correctly and they died? Like there's some kind of like fraud or scheme or something in his background and we don't need to take time to explore it, but it's just so many of the characters are like that. We spend so much time with Blackie and he looks at first blush, like just kind of your standard uh, like 50s thug he's the kind of guy that it's great to play cards with as long as you lose to him but if you win he's probably going to kill you <laughs> uh-huh. but then you get all of these little details he he runs a like a machinist shop for washing machines because he wants to make sure he's got a legitimate business that nobody can take away from him he worked as a longshoreman and he's determined that he's never going back but he had some kind of like very pally deal with the old night watchman there there's this sense of like a big tragic backstory that you only get like the slightest hints of. And if you look through this selection of characters, practically every major character has something like that. There's this little scene between uh, the mayor and one of his aides that's like, if, as I recall, you were the one that told me to run for this office. And then they kind of have a laugh together. And it's like, there's a sense that those guys have like a whole story behind them. That's like an entirely different movie that we're just not going to get here. So I enjoyed just kind of the tension of it and like the pretty cinematography and the expansiveness of the action and some of the surprises, but mostly I just enjoyed like how much it portrays something that feels like an actual world. Yeah. I mean, that's so crucial. I mean, there are a couple of things here just in response to what people have said. I mean, I think that, As far as the narrative follow through on this plague, I would say that it's there mostly as a novelty to some degree to kind of goose up the narrative and as a metaphor. I mean, because I mean, what, you know, I mean, there's a thousand detective stories about a murder that needs to be solved in following that trail of breadcrumbs. But when it becomes a matter of urgent public health. And you can see how what glimpse you do get of this illness is quite terrifying. That just gives the film a real edge. The other thing, too, is I I think that the uh, location work is so vivid. That coffee factory warehouse at the end. Was, yeah, is distribution. So cool. It's like a shipping yeah. distribution yeah. warehouse. Yeah, the beginning is so beautiful. The lighting is so beautiful, and um, and just you know being able to see some slice of New Orleans. At the time, yeah, you just, don't get so that. precious. You don't, you never see that in a film from 1950. It's, it's and a so really, rare. a really unfamiliar area of it too. Like it's, yeah. it's not Bourbon Street. It's mm-hmm. not wrought iron balconies and cemeteries. It's shipping factories. These like back of the dock kind of areas. Uh, these like rundown, slummy kind of little corners of it, and it just it feels like you're seeing parts of a world that probably are not there anymore yeah i'm a little embarrassed to admit like how far into the movie we got before i like realized it was new orleans (laughs) and that's not a slight against the film's location work it's more 
complimented, like, it doesn't go to those obvious visual reference points to establish, like, this is New Orleans, you know? Yeah, I, I, for, by coincidence, I've been watching a lot of films set in New Orleans, like, for a couple of different things, including this podcast. And, yeah, it's, it's the opposite of Angel Heart, which sort of just slathers on uh, one, <laughs> one, like, New Orleans uh, landmark after another. And I, I don't I, know if I, there's I, one brass instrument you hear in the, in the score of this <laughs> film. Uh, I like also, like, you know, it, it's New Orleans as a port city, too. I mean, this is that's that's part of what makes it yeah. so dangerous, too, is it's that it's the disease can spread uh, from there, but also it's a gathering place for for not just locals, but like you know for Greeks and for Asian people, and like everyone who travels the world comes there at one point or another, and and that's uh, part of what makes it such an interesting place. It's the kind of place where you can get exotic foreign food like shish kebab. <laughs> shish kebab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1950, I guess. I remember uh, it, like as a teenager reading my way through Beverly Cleary. And there's one Beverly Cleary book where uh, like this all-American girl goes on a date and they go to a Chinese food restaurant. And then there's just like an entire chapter about her being deeply unnerved by how alien all the food is. <laughs> and she can't eat it. And she it, it freaks her out. And like... We know that the the wholesome boy that she's dating is like a good guy because afterwards he takes her out for a hamburger, <laughs> and it, it was it was so alien to me at the time, and I I love seeing like little elements of that in film. Just like here is a world where, uh, what eight nine year old boy gets like a pork chop and a baked potato for lunch, and <laughs> a fairly a fairly worldly brace of cops needs to have shish kebab explained to them. Oh, speaking of the little boy, that just reminds me of Tasha. You were kind of talking about all these little like deep side stories that we only get a glimpse of like the little boy and the painter and like sort of the rivalry between <laughs> between Dr. Reed and this like painter neighbor who his son apparently really has taken a shine to. Well, he's got those trains. What's up with that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he does have trains. I I tell you that that painter comes across as a freaking child molester. Mm, oh, at the very just yeah. yeah, when we see him at the end, well Child That's a molestation nice aside, there. Yeah, yeah, but also just like super condescending too. Like even if you don't want to go that dark with it, he's just kind of a dick. Yeah, I just watched. Um, I re I just rewatched Honey Boy, the uh, Shia LaBeouf plays his own father movie, and there's a whole thing there where he, as his father, is deeply jealous of the son that was was him. You know, the, whose story he's telling it has a big brother is in the Big Brother program. And that guy comes around and he threatens him and throws him into a pool and is like, you keep away from my son because the guy's doing things that he's not doing, like taking him to the ball game. And I, I kept waiting for something like that here. There was just sort of that sense of there's got to be some kind of like jealousy or a rivalry here, right? There's got to be some kind of payoff for this interaction. But Widmark's just like, okay, hey, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Certainly have been neglecting my son while I try to prevent the entire city and possibly yeah. country from dying. <laughs> we'll get right on that sport. To not completely leave the question about how it plays now, I did find something quite strong and relevant in the relationship between uh, Widmark and the detective, because I think we're seeing so much of that now of a group of people who recognize a problem and recognize the urgency of doing everything you can to stop something you know this sort of tragedy from spreading and then the skeptical folks you have to kind of just browbeat into finally <laughs> you know giving you some credit you know what i mean like that kind of relationship felt right to me and it, it also feels right to have those types of people who are going to be skeptical or like you know i mean this is a detective this is his business like who is this health officer coming around and telling him what to do all that felt pretty real to me i like woodmark's performance a lot too a lot of the movie is kind of dedicated to him 
kind of breaking out. I mean, he's playing such like sort of quintessential post-war movie guy, like movie hero. Like I don't know how to reflect that as of how you know men actually behaved, but like he's such a recognizable type of like hard bitten, sarcastic movie hero. And he kind of has to learn how to not be that anymore. Like yeah. to to open up to his wife and to open up to his son and and to actually kind of recognize that there's another point of view coming from the policeman he needs to listen to. I think that's such an, an interesting part of the movie, and, it's, and I think it all plays out really well and slowly over the course of the whole film. And of course, Keith, uh, you know, what is the most famous thing that Richard Widmark ever did on screen? Oh, geez. Now you're making... making Push okay, a I'm not gonna, I'll, well, I'll, answer, my own, I'll <laughs> answer my own question. Yeah. He pushed a wheelchair-bound old lady down the stairs and, uh, and kiss a death. Oh, right. So he kind of had a lot to sort of... Yeah, I mean, that was like one of, the, I think, one of the more notorious and kind of awesome moments in film noir, just uh, of Richard Woodmark uh, as a heavy and kiss of death pushing a, <laughs> a disabled person down the, down a flight of stairs. So you kind of have to come back from that. That's the image he established as a noir actor. And uh, and in here, he's much more, you know, unambiguously our hero. Tasha, what did you, you had something you wanted to say. Oh, I was just thinking that it feels significant that what takes him from complete contempt of uh, the cop, Captain Warren, played by Paul Douglas, to like coming around on him and describing him as, what, something like four times the man I'll ever be, is when Warren does something extremely self-sacrificing. I feel like maybe like Clinton's Clinton's deal is as Keith was saying about kind of that uh, the post-war idea of manliness is like kind of a a quiet suffering and a willing to sacrifice yourself for the greater good and you know he he doesn't want to sleep here because he's afraid of what will happen he like offers $50 of his own money to anybody who can tell him anything down at the like the longshoremen's union he throws himself in the face of danger like time and time again and what it takes to impress him is realizing that captain warren has possibly destroyed his own career in order to prevent a public panic in order to buy them a little bit more time mm-hmm. and it guts him. It it really kind of destroys him for a few minutes to understand that he's been underestimating this man who is willing to take the same kind of hits that he's willing to take. And it's a pretty great moment in the film, honestly. I think underlined by the fact that he doesn't really say anything to him about it at the time. He just kind of goes home and like slumps into a chair to think about it and then kind of like mumbles about it to his wife without really explaining it. Like he doesn't want to talk about it. He sort of wants to experience his own shame at having doubted this guy. So when I spent a little bit of time in the keynote talking about this film as metaphor, because I think that's unavoidable, but I think the question that becomes metaphor for what? Was it a thing where a an outbreak is just an outbreak, or did you all read it a little differently than that? Well, I mean, one way to read it is it infects the underworld, the crime community, and, and like, and you kind of see how much of Blackie's influence spread throughout the town and how it kind of, mm. you know, the corruption kind of spread. So I think it's it's a fine metaphor just for that, if you want to stop there. I don't love it as a metaphor. I like, whether it's a metaphor for the spread of immigrants uh, taking down our country or the spread of communism trying to take down our country, or maybe it's about zombies. You know, it's, it's a big flexible metaphor because it's so nonspecific. What struck me more, just as far as the underpinnings, the subtext, is how much it's a movie about selfishness and how like human selfishness causes people to work very directly against their own interests and their own safety. 
Um, mm-hmm. Not to mention the community safety, <laughs> public safety. Yeah. Mm. There's the Greek couple that knows Poldi and could point the people looking for him in his direction and potentially save a lot of lives, but they don't want to get involved. They're afraid of the repercussions. There's the captain on his ship. Like they know that they brought this guy aboard. They know that he was sick. They know that the crew is probably infected, but he doesn't want the trouble. He doesn't want the risk of like his business being shut down. So he denies that any of it's true. It seems like a lot of this film is about people weighing what they're told is their interest against what they feel is their interest and choosing what they feel is their interest with the audience left to go like, no, that's the wrong decision. Like you need to consider the community as well as your own safety. If you're considering both of these things at once, you'd make the right decision here. And it feels like to me, like that's much more, more than like a metaphor for the spread of communism. It's like a teaching story about how important it is to like to listen to other people and consider the impact of your actions. And again, maybe like sacrifice a little in uh, the hopes of assisting the common good. Yeah, I think that kind of gets at where I have a little bit of trouble with this as a metaphor or the plague element of this story is because the way that this story is constructed, it attaches a, a moral element to the illness, you know, like everyone who catches it or succumbs to it does so because they did something amoral, you know? Mm. Um, there's there's no innocence in the mix. You know, even the restaurateur's wife, you know, she tells him not to cooperate, basically. So it gets just a little, a little dicey, again, thinking of it as a pandemic film or an outbreak film, as opposed to a crime film, a, a noir, which it is. So you know, again, I'm sort of putting a framework onto this movie that it can't quite support. But just thinking about it in terms of metaphor, that's an element of it where the the metaphor gets real muddy for me. I can see that. I do think that there are a lot of innocent people infected, and we just don't focus on their stories. When the cops and Clinton find Poldy in that slum, they shut the entire area down. They quarantine everybody because it's very likely that, for instance, his mother is infected, uh, That and like anybody that she's come in contact with in that area is infected. We just don't take the time to see those people or see those stories. I guess you're right. I think it's just because of the way this movie ends with a very, like, brushing our hands, good day's work, everyone, <laughs> you know? Job, yeah, that, well, that's over. I think I just kind of process it as being like, well, there were just these like two or three people and, and that was it, you know? But you're right, there is sort of the whole quarantine element and presumably it, it plays out more there. But like you said, we don't we don't see that, so. There is also everybody on the Kolchak ship. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we know that one person died on that ship and potentially everybody there is infected and they all have to get the, the inoculation. vaccine. <laughs> the inoculation. Yeah, that's it, it, that's the part that seemed maybe a little too easy see, for it's, me. It's just setting up for a, the sequel, Panic on the Sea, right? Panic on the Sea. I absolutely agree that the we've brought this bacteria to justice uh, kind of ending seems a little too pat and certainly uh, works against... Cuff them, boys. <laughs> put, put, put that bacteria in cuffs and uh, get in the back seat. Our work is done here. But, I mean, that is, it is very pat in the way of 50 cinema. You know, it's, 
I think there's a necessary buy-in there that's the exact same kind of buy-in as the idea that like the cops or the the PI are going to get their man. Like the criminals are always going to pull off the heist brilliantly, but then screw up because somebody breaks faith or somebody uh, spends too much money and, you know, the cops are going to get led to them. Like there's always going to be some kind of moral element and some kind of wrap up that was just sort of the era. And I feel like, like I understand why you might find that unsatisfying, but you know, the story of we went through all of this trouble and we got everything. And Oh, like, by the way, uh, Kolchak bumped into a stranger in the street and everybody's going to die of pneumonia plague anyway. It's just not a very like satisfying or thematic movie. Yeah. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not that like I want that dark ending. Like I don't think it's a flaw that it wraps up as, as well as it as it does. Um, I'm just saying, again, watching this in 2020 in our current context, it does create a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Uh, because of that i've been thinking about this as we've been talking and about the my uh keynote and i i actually do think it's a metaphor for communism i'm sorry <laughs> i've convinced <laughs> I've myself around, i'm I've right come around to that i've come around to that view and here's here's my here's the here's the reason why one kazan had quit the com was a member of the communist party and he had left at that point uh two the korean war was just getting going uh and there was a red scare was fully ramping up we heard the keynote, uh, three Scott. three bop, 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 i'm still not there three three Think about On the Waterfront and how these two films relate to each other. I mean, On the Waterfront was the f- a film that he made after giving the, the testimony. It was so nakedly a film you know, about why he would have given that testimony. And I think that the two films are companions. I mean, they're both set, you know, on the docks. And it, it just seems so neat to me, this idea of foreign influence coming to our shores and the necessity of having to stop it i just i'm sticking to it i'm back i'm back i'm gonna defy you again once again keith and and say uh this feels like a metaphor for communism to me oh scott communism was just a red herring i feel like if if you just if you just reduce it like that it's it's a less interesting uh, but he does though kazan does kazan just told you he said said that that's what he did Mm -hmm. In the theater, like he he said that you know he was he was all about assigning certain. Since you know, when do you s- play stock in authorial intent? It seems, it seems a little extra, <laughs> extra textual to me. Oh man, I've been I've been I've been had. I'm just Besides, going. I'm just, Scott, I'm go- I'm, you know what's yeah. what's what's the opposite of communism? Like what's the uh like the the good straightforward American opposite of communism? It's capitalism. Who is the biggest capitalist here? Blackie, the guy that owns an entire legitimate <laughs> business that is yeah. dedicated to fixing washing <laughs> machines, and ain't nobody going to take away from him this thing that he's uh, scrapped and and saved and uh, worked to build. He uh, he cares about his money. He cares about his business, and uh, look where he ends up. He ends up in the drink. Like it's. It's all a metaphor for how there's like no, no ethical socioeconomic uh, political system. Wow, it's pretty solid, Tasha. I like it. Can, um, can, we, can we can we talk about about Blackie and and Jack Palance? Oh, because yeah. that's a performance so about him. And what a, he's like, so what a presence. My this is his looking. debut too, right? Yes, this is his first film. I mean, can you imagine being the casting agent that like that that walks in off the street and you're just like. Uh, can I? You need to be in everything, right? Can you act? That's even <laughs> better. He's got such a face uh, and a physique. Like he's so tall compared mm-hmm. to everybody, uh-huh. and like that the lineup of like his like long, tall, lean body, and then like Zero Mostel being short and wide, and then Poldy being like this skinny little bantam of a man, and you like you line them up together, and it looks like a cartoon. It looks like some kind of joke. He's so physically intimidating. 
And it's so fascinating to see that uh, that such a familiar, like, craggy, like, high cheekbone face, like that face that we've been seeing all our lives. But this is like the very young, very taut, like very chin forward version of it. He's really intimidating uh, from the first moment, like the first moment you see him, like he looks like a 50s noir gangster. And then he plays out as this kind of like simultaneously sort of soulful and just like terrifyingly ruthless figure. And then by the end, he's just like a machine The mm-hmm. he's like the Terminator. He will not stop going the, mm-hmm. the chase sequence that just goes on and on and on. And the physical comedy of him constantly pushing Zero Mostel in front of him, like very visibly to like use him as a human shield, bullying him forward through all of these things as Zero Mostel just gets more and more winded and weary and tired. And <laughs> and Palance looks fresh, but but also just not willing to let go of like this meat shield that he's got in front of him. It's it's physical comedy in a se- se- sequence that is not at all funny. Yeah, there's there's just so much physicality to that performance. The uh, where it stuck out to me, well, obviously, like the face is is the first thing when he came on screen for the first time. Uh, Steve uh, said that guy has a face like an anvil, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he does. And at that point, I ha- it hadn't clicked yet that like that's that's who it was, you know, because it, it, he he is like I've never seen Jack Palance this, this young before. But the part that really stuck out to me is that scene in the, I thought it was a laundromat, but you said machine shop. So I, the place with the washing machines. Uh, I thought they were there to be fixed. But yeah, it is possible that it was, uh, that it was a laundromat. laundromat. And I, honestly, that would make more sense given the way they're lined up. There was just something about just the, like the machinery going on and the way he told um, Mostel's wife not to mess with him. I, yeah, I assumed it's a fix it shop, but you're almost certainly right. It probably is a laundromat. Well, what, what? Whatever it is, the place with the laundry machines. When he's like talking about how you know, when he's kind of working out what they're after after Poldy, and he's just like he keeps like crouching and like moving his body and these really like odd positions, and it's noticeable, but it's not distracting. If that if that makes sense, like there, it's just like it makes Blackie seem like he's an intimidating figure. He's a tough character, but he's not like a stoic or rigid character, which is a combination. I feel like you don't get a whole lot especially with noir criminals so just like the way he moves his body in this movie just really struck me in in multiple scenes but that was the that scene in the shop is where it really stood out to me the most that scene towards the end where he and and mostel and i keep calling him poldy even though i'm talking about everybody else as their character tommy cook he's trying to convince uh cook to give up the goods you know he's he's convinced that somewhere either in the room that he's in or hidden somewhere else is like a a vast valuable treasure and like going back and forth between comforting and petting this guy that's sort of nominally his friend and shaking him and threatening him uh it's <laughs> it's really charismatic like in both ways like it's yeah. he's a convincing charmer and, and cozener and then he's convincingly terrifying when he switches back and forth and you can just sort of feel what it would be like to be at the end of the gun barrel of his charisma when he wants something out of you barbara belgetti's in this movie too i mean it's kind of a it's a wife part but i think it's mm-hmm. it's both well written and really well played by her i, I think she's kind of suggests complexities to that character and to their relationship that aren't necessarily on the page. Yeah, I really like that performance. And I think that performance sells a written relationship that feels pretty unpleasant, pretty creepy. Mm. Like every time Widmark grabs her face, 
uh, yeah. and uh, like examines her before he kisses her. I'm like, I'm reminded of uh, Idris Elba, like taking possession of somebody in the wire. Hmm. There's just a weird sense of this is my property and I'm looking it over. And it's not when it was done in the wire, it was very obviously being done for erotic effect. It was being done as a kind of like ownership dominance thing. But here it's like, it's almost meant to be some sort of like romantic gesture. Like I grab your face, like hard enough to indent your cheek before I kiss you. And it just set me off every time. And his kind of dismissive way of talking to her. I think what makes it work is like the fact that she doesn't like it and tells him so in a way that's not like nagging or abrasive or even particularly hurt. It's just very matter of fact, like, here's what our relationship has become. I don't care for it. You need to see it for what it is and like acknowledge your faults in it and do better. It's like relationship maintenance of a kind that you just really don't see in movies because it's not big and dramatic. You know, there's no yelling, there's no throwing things, there's no weeping. It's relationship maintenance the way it should happen. Just like, we're going to have a rational sit down about what's wrong here. And like, I'm going to lay out how I actually feel. And I hope that you're going to hear me. And it's such a strange thing to happen in the middle of this movie. Uh, the fact that she's like trying to fix their marriage in the middle of this uh, pandemic protocol movie. But as with so many other things in this movie, they're like, oh, there's a whole huge background here. There's a whole story behind their conversations about his job and his feelings of inadequacy and their decision over a second child. And we're just going to give you a very small slice of it, like the, the part that can fit into the middle of this crisis. I think just broadly speaking, this is a film that does every thing a little bit better than you would expect it to like yeah. it's like it, it's like it's a thing where it's a noir procedural you know pretty straightforward in a lot of respects but it has this element of this potential bacterial outbreak it's got performances are better the location photography is striking there's a little bit more nuance uh, to the character to the writing and to the to the acting it's like everything is just like this is, is cranked up just a bit all across the board and that kind of is what makes the film stand out. It's like, it's, it's almost as if Kazan, who is still quite, you know, this is very early in his career, you know, before, you know, he had so many major films ahead of him, like East of Eden and, and, and On the Waterfront and a bunch of other things uh, that would come to really define his career. This is him, you know, being the studio hand in a way. I mean, he's making a genre film for 20th Century Fox, and it's like he's doing every single thing better than you expect. And, uh, you know, you got to respect it. But uh, we will get into Panic in the Streets more next week when we bring in Steven Soderbergh's Contagion. But we need a break and uh, we'll be back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. But with respect to our listeners, I wanted to take some time to hear from uh, you all, my co-hosts. Uh, you know, one big reason we started the Next Picture Show is as a social occasion. We had worked together for so many years at the AV Club and the Dissolve that we wanted to find a way to continue that relationship, preferably without giving anyone else the option to end it. Uh, but here we all are in isolation in our homes. I mean, this is for Genevieve has been somewhat familiar <laughs> lately because she's been in Detroit, but the rest of us, you know, we're, we're stuck here indefinitely. And uh, so I want to see how are you doing. Uh, for, so my, my questions to you are, one, how are you holding up? And two, uh, beyond 
uh, making a sourdough starter, as Genevieve <laughs> and I did the same day. <laughs> uh, wh- uh, what have you been doing with your time? I know you guys name your sourdough starters. I know that's a, yeah. a very common thing. Mm-hmm. Did you give them like uh, little buddy names, like little connected theme names? Well, not to each other's, no, but mine references a joke that, that Scott and I share. Mine is named Detective Boyle after the Brooklyn Nine-Nine character who uh, has a love of sourdough starters. Yeah, the mother dough. The mother dough, yes. <laughs> uh, and my, and mine, mine is named Doughy Jr. Because uh, uh, Doughy was my first sourdough starter and uh, uh, he passed away uh, due to uh, parental neglect. And uh, But now I'm going to bring bring back Doughy Jr. and uh, treat him the, with the respect and care that uh, the young man deserves. Uh, and uh, he'll, he'll make some nice tangy bread for us. So um, I'm excited uh, to, to get into that. It's been incredible, like, the wave and bread making. <laughs> People are baking their way out of uh, out of this crisis. So uh, yeah, well, because so you can't that. buy bread, or at least it, in, in my local supermarket. We were chatting a little before we jumped on. Uh, Tasha, you were going grocery shopping, and I asked how the shelves were because, like, the past few times I've gone to the grocery store, paper products aisle is empty and the bread aisle is empty. So the bread aisles are fine locally. I the first grocery store trip that I made uh, during all of this, we were out of town. Um, we were actually headed to a little cabin in the woods for uh, a little Wi-Fi free getaway, mm. and we went to a, a pretty large grocery store to stock up for the cabin. And the the toilet paper uh, stock was empty, and like everything else was fine, except for some reason the hostess aisle. <laughs> like there had been a a run on just like. Little Debbie cakes and and Hostess products, <laughs> like you couldn't believe. And I was like, I people must be just thinking, okay, a Twinkies last forever, and b I'm in need of like some comfort food that touches on nostalgia that that really feeds my inner child because the bread aisle was uh, had been attacked. But like you could still find everything, but that the hostess aisle, if, if we had for some strange reason wanted ding-dongs at the cabin, we would not have been able to have them. I do not have a sourdough starter, but my wife does, yeah. named, named Audrey Three. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's going pretty well. Some loaves turn out better than others, but but uh, I, you know, even with those, I appreciate the effort. Yeah, we're enjoying some bread here. Okay, so 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 what what do we got besides bread well, and grocery stuff here? What can what can we what can we give uh, what can I we think give the we're, listeners? We're, we're struggling here to share space, and my wife and I both work to work. I mean, you know, I'm freelancer, so full time job is sort of loosely defined. But we both have full time jobs, and we have a, a kid, and now we're charged with educating that kid. And, and Scott, you're charged with educating two kids, and and uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's a challenge. It's a it's a real and, and yes. I don't know that we're doing anything particularly well. We're just, but we are doing it. Yeah, no, it is. Well, I have a I have a uh, sixth grader and a third grader, and really with the third grader, especially, it's just it is it's it's kind of a full time thing. We've discovered it's like you really have to redirect and be on top of everything that she's doing, which of course takes away from work. So it's been I, literally the longest week mm. of my life. I can't I can't believe we're on Thursday now. I can't believe it's not over. So that part of it's been, and I've I've been fortunate enough to get a lot of work, uh, which is not something that a lot of a lot of freelance work is drying up. I, I happen to be fortunate enough to be doing a lot, but I'm also unfortunate to have to do it because my time to do it is, you know, 
very limited. I've done, there hasn't been a whole lot of time for me to do anything but work and educate, homeschool the kids. And, and uh, maybe that's for I, the I better. I think you're having maybe a better uh, run of it than I am, but I am trying to line up as much freelance work now before it all dries up. I got my, I got my first, well, that um, too. I need to, we need to pump the brakes on this a little bit, uh, thing from an editor today. Uh, and so I don't uh, want, you know, I hope that's not a trend that yeah, continues. Um, it's, I've heard that. Yeah. Um, but what about y'all? <laughs> Jennifer, I mean, I'm in kind of a weird space with all this because if i'm being brutally honest my day-to-day life has changed very little like i i've lived a pretty isolated existence since i I moved to michigan from chicago i've been working at home outside of my fiance who who i live with uh, and my mom who i who i also live with like don't have a whole lot of social engagements like to take me out of the house like you think things here and there but before this even happened, I could go many days without leaving the house. And like, that was sort of a a stress point for me for for a long time, you know, like this feeling that I am too isolated, and I'm, I'm not doing enough to be out there in the world. And now here I am. And suddenly that stress is removed, but it's replaced by this other much bigger, much, much scarier stress. But I'm trying to practice gratitude that, like, I am, you know, set up to mm-hmm. weather this. I don't have children. Um, I have a, a dog who is, you know, thrilled to have more people around the house all, all day, every day. But, you know, um, but I am in a job. I'm still working a, a job full time that is sort of pivoting to all coronavirus related content all, all the time. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say that because I, I cover TV and there is still some TV happening as as planned uh, for, for the time being. But, you know, so much of this entertainment coverage uh, that's happening right now specifically is about like, what to do to fill all this free time you suddenly have. Here's things to watch. Here's things to read. Like, it's all predicated on the assumption that you're you're so bored alone in your home and I'm not. I'm really busy. I'm as busy as I've ever been. And, and mm-hmm. you know, so it's a, a weird sort of thing to wrap my head around, even keeping the whole, you know, existential terror of the situation out, out of the equation, just in the sort of day to day. It's sort of a, a weird adjustment. What I'm sort you? of in the same boat. I mean, I've worked at home since 2015, when the dissolve shut down, um, first as a freelancer, and then full time for The Verge, and now full time for, for Polygon. So like i i mean i have a a pretty intense schedule of i'm either like online editing people or scheduling things or answering emails or i'm sitting here in the exact same room watching something that i'm going to write about so i'm much like genevieve like i am not suddenly full of free time but like i've always sort of compensated for my like my type A overscheduling tendencies uh, at work with type A overscheduling tendencies socially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been like a bar, a oh, bar yes. person, but like I, I have been typically somebody who has plans with some friend group practically every night and on the weekends. And I've just, I've seen all of that kind of shut down and a week into this, I'm already very squirrely to the point where I'm mm-hmm. like reaching out to friends in just a very anxious kind of way a lot because I feel under socialized. And 
I'm also just feeling a whole lot of anxiety. You know, it, it comes from social media, but it's it's less about the news and more about specific individual people. Um, friends of mine who have been mm-hmm. laid off or had their hours cut, you know, people, the, the Regal Theater chain, and this is something we should all be talking about a lot more. The Regal Theater chain uh, shut down until further notice and summarily, you can't even say fired. They... They technically fired everybody below the general manager level, but they positioned it as furloughing, uh, which means they're mm. what they're saying is you aren't fired, so you can't collect unemployment, uh, but you're also not here, so you can't get paid or have health insurance. They're they're basically trying to walk a line that gives them absolutely no responsibility whatsoever for tens of thousands of employees who are suddenly finding themselves completely unemployed in the middle of uh, a crisis where they probably can't just go out and get another job at that level. Not just not another job at, the, at a theater, but not another like minimum wage job. And I don't know what all of those people are going mm-hmm. to do. Like some of them are fire, filing for unemployment. Some of them are turning to things like crowdfunding. And some of them are just sort of like making open appeals for like, I don't know what I'm going to do on social media. So there's a lot of that in the air. And it just it makes me really angry, um, to be honest, in a way that's not productive, because I, I don't know what I can do about it, apart, apart from like offering to help support some of my friends who are out of work and are having difficulties figuring out where to turn. I've been heartened by the degree to which um, people have kind of like quietly pulled together. I know that this is very early days, and we may eventually mm-hmm. go in a contagion direction of uh, panic in the streets, as it were, <laughs> um, if things like toilet paper just become like hard to come by. Uh, I think the tenor of all of this will change. Um, at the moment, it feels like the tenor is kind of not involuntary house party. Like we don't like it. Let's make the best of it. Let's kind of pull together. I I keep thinking of the, the classic British poster, like keep calm and carry on. That's what it feels like, at least in my corner of the world, I keep sort of wondering what it's like for other people in, in very different social settings. But yeah, and much like with Genevieve, my day to day hasn't changed much, but the tenor of everything feels like it's changed. And it's mm-hmm. hard to to not feel a lot of anxiety. Today was the first day, uh, like I left the House on Tuesday to go vote in the Illinois primaries with the feeling that mm-hmm. it didn't matter a damn bit because all of the important decisions have already been made. But tonight was the first night I actually went out and like walked around in downtown, like the downtown uh, area near me um, and just like read all of the signs on the shops. Uh, many of which have shut down for the interim, some of which have gone to uh, like call-in or by appointment only. Uh, a lot of the restaurants are still doing carry-out, but you know, not dine-in. But an awful lot of the signs on, on the doors of these places have little messages mm. of solidarity and hope. A little kind of, let's get through this together, and isn't this a crazy time that we're all in? And, you know, let's wait and see what happens, but we will still be here when it's all over. Like, that's sort of the tone. And I found it just kind of personally uplifting to see, like, all of these little messages that people are are kind of, like, putting out into the world, out into the physical world. You know, this isn't coming through social media. It's literally coming through signs on doors. And I don't know why, but I, I found it very warming uh, during a period where everything seems kind of uncertain. 
Yeah, we were we're trying to support local restaurants by eating out like like at least once a week or whatever. And, and I, I took my daughter uh, up Clark Street, which those of you who don't know Chicago, it's a busy. It's kind of you know busiest street in Chicago and fairly so several different neighborhoods. And certainly in ours, it's just a, this uh, shop lined uh, street that you know we love to walk in down. It's our neighborhood, and there's maybe four other people out, six other people out, and they're on all the signs. Just I kept reminded of like you know. The moment of the opening of, of George Romero's Day of the Dead, where you see the headline that says "The Dead Walk," and like this is not even relevant information anymore. Like I thought, like you know, how long are these signs going to be up? Like how many places are, are going to on a reopen at all? I mean, the margins for some of these places are so thin, and 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 you know, I can't imagine that the the store that sells like you know T-shirts and tchotchkes is is going to be able to survive two months being closed. Like, What's this place even going to look like at the end of it? I don't know. It, it's I was very unsettled by. I mean, the, my my journeys out into the world have been very unsettling so far. <laughs> oh well, oh, okay. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know sure Someone if I can really to, to end this on turn that positive. around. I did. I did like what I did like what Tasha was saying. I think that we are potentially experiencing the remaking of society in a way, and we're at the beginning of something. And who knows what it's going to look like? I mean, the uncertainty is certainly is an anxiety in itself for sure. Knowing what the ultimate shape this is going to and toll this is going to take is is um that that is uh, nervous making i just you know feel fortunate that that i'm in the, the position that i'm in i mean i you know, certainly recognize my own privilege in this mm. situation and and um you know i'm just using this time to cherish the people who are close to me and and um try to make the best of it and so uh but god almighty it's only been a few days uh you know what's what you know what's the world gonna be like when this podcast drops and then what's the world gonna yeah. be like when you know our contagion podcast drops it is um pretty wild to I'll, consider, I'll try i'll try, um, I'll try to bring but, this out um, here uh, uh on a positive right. note it's like i was telling my daughter today i don't know if she's gonna have kids or not who knows but but if she does she'll be able to tell them about growing up in this very strange time and like my goal right now is to get her to the place where she can do that and you know as as healthy and and well balanced and and as stable and happier person as she as she can be so like i think in some ways that's that's kind of what's keeping me going through this all right well on that you guys note, are helping me through uh, this we all... like i i mean i i i mean i'm not trying to be corny but like one thing that we're already seeing, and I suspect we're we're going to see a lot more of uh, in in the weeks ahead, is you know just a real uptick in people finding new ways to gather. You know, we're we're using a new video conferencing software that that we haven't had to use before because it's only just been me calling in before, and people are arranging viewing parties. I'm going to watch RuPaul's Drag Race with my best friend over Zoom tomorrow. You know, like these are things that. As someone who's been isolated from from my friends for a long time, it's been hard to convince people to or not and I haven't even tried to convince people to to like kind of do these sorts of activities with me to to try to communicate in, in this different kind of odd way. But now that it's something people are being forced to do and they're a lot more open to it and it's you know, it's it's an opportunity to kind of learn a new way to be to be social, um, and I like that because it's you know it's forcing people to be social with me in a way that they wouldn't have done before necessarily. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I and that's something I've been encouraging. 
uh, my older daughter to do uh, with her friends because she's got such a close group of friends at school is to just like be able to carve out some time, you know, every day if possible to, uh, you know, have FaceTime type discussions with her friends and, and uh, you know, continue those relationships that uh, won't be able to kind of pick up again in the physical realm <laughs> for a while and, um, and i can hear so, julius uh, in, so in the background is, is there it's like it's like <laughs> yeah, the j-man the j-man's down here he's been a jerk though i gotta say i mean I, i'm sorry cats can understand what i'm saying but he's been he's been an absolute holy terror this time i don't know, what, I don't know what's wrong with him it's, it's like nothing's uh, changed but though. julius is dinging around being a jerk yeah <laughs> he's like whatever you know he's, he's he, except you know we're around now we're all around i don't know maybe that's what's got up cranky but boy howdy well yeah well of course it has been good to catch up it's it's been <laughs> we've we, we the, the four of us haven't had a chance to really all chat together until now and i guess it's part of the podcast <laughs> uh, but i but i don't think it'll necessarily be a regular part of the podcast uh we always appreciate of course when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations and we promise on future episodes of the show uh your, the feedback that you've written to us will be considered uh, for broadcast if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net that's it for this episode of the next picture show in our next episode we'll bring our outbreak watch frighteningly up to date with steven soderbergh's contagion Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, keep working on those one-arm push-ups, Jack Palance style. Exercise is still important. Don't let us get sick. Don't let us get old, don't let us get stupid, all right. Just make us be brave, make us play nice, let us be together tonight.